all of a sudden we hear pop, 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 and he's firing a shot, uh, not a shotgun, but a rifle through the front windows of the bar. Jesus. So we tucked, we tucked down behind the bar. The Buyback Podcast takes place in a bar. If you aren't old enough to be in the bar, you're probably not old enough to be listening to the content in this podcast. For the rest of you degenerates, pour yourself a drink, sit back, and let's get this party started. Welcome to the Buyback. I'm Alex. I'm John. <laughs> and we have a special guest tonight, the one, the only, Mr. Claude Berenberg. Did you really gonna put my last name on blast like that? You're not Claude Berenberg. Last time I checked. Last time. <laughs> yeah. Last time I checked. I so this we are interviewing John's father for this special episode of the buyback, and we couldn't be more excited. It's a pretty big deal because yesterday was what my 76th birthday. Hi, Claude. <laughs> there you go. How are you? I'm good, and my, my actual name is John Claude. John? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That makes so, me John Vincent. That doesn't makes it? you yeah. John Vincent, JV. Yep. And I'm still Alex. You're still Alex. <laughs> Do you want to be John Alex? <laughs> no. You could be John Alex. I could be John Alex, I guess, yeah. J A, J V, and J C. Does anyone ever call you J C? Yeah, people used to call me J C, and for a long time people would call me the letter J Claude. J Claude. They would call you because I never used John, okay. so they would just put the letter J on a thing, J Claude. With a dash, like J dash Claude. Not even a dash. Just sometimes <laughs> just they J would say, J "Hey, the letter J Claude." Well, sometimes you no, know, it would mostly be written. It would be the letter J period Claude. <laughs> Wait, I have a I have a comment. Okay. He's already putting on the podcast voice. Do you hear it? I mean, it's, he just has a good podcast voice. I think he's putting on the podcast voice, just like we do. I don't know. <laughs> I think you were born for this. I, I think that probably he was born, John was born for this, but as he says, from my loins. <laughs> Wait, so, okay. Hi, it's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. A handshake just occurred. Tell us who you are. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Where did you, where'd you grow up? And then how did you get into bartending? So we'll, we'll go from the beginning into bartending. You can also include my birth if you want. No. <laughs> I was actually there. <laughs> so I could describe it with great detail. Unless my conception happened at a bar. I don't want to know. Never mind, I take it back. I take it back. I was born in, in Rockville Center, Oceanside, Long Island, which is a town about 25 miles outside of New York City on the south shore of Long Island. And I was raised there and went to school there and hung out there on and off for probably 22 or 23 years, with the exception of the time that I was away at college and I would come back and so on and so forth. But very standard, very standard. And I didn't have any money. So as a result of not having a lot of money, it was very difficult to go to college. So I was always hustling. I was hustling and grifting to get through college. And I eventually ended up in my sophomore year at the University of Hartford. So we go through and I graduate, and I get a job in a place called Moody's Connecticut teaching English in high school. And they're paying me $6,000 a year, $125 a week. And I'm going, I'm gonna live on $125 a week. As it turned out, John's mother 
who was my girlfriend at the time, was hostessing at a place called the Steak and Brew, which was a restaurant, chain restaurant in New York City that had some branches outside. And this branch was in Farmington, Connecticut. And it was the most successful, high-yielding branch of all the steak and brews outside of New York City. She introduced me to the manager. The manager liked me, and he made me a waiter. And I started waiting table there. It was a cool place. Yeah. And the waiters and waitresses were all college people. They were all people going to undergraduates, or they were in graduate school, or they were in law school. Or they were just fun people. Their wives would work there. They would work there. It was a lot of turn, fast-moving stuff. And you'd, you'd make, for, for me, pretty good money at that point, which during the week, because that's the shifts I got, because I was new, during the week was about $60 a night. So two nights, I'd make $120, which equaled what I was making teaching week. during the day. Yes. JV's mother got a job in a place called the Brass Lantern, which was being run by a new bartender. He was a graduate of the high school that she had gone to. He had come back from Vietnam, went to bartending school on the GI Bill, and got a job as the bartender there, and he hired Patty as the cocktail waitress. So I would pick her up at night, like 9, 10 o'clock at night. And he and I became friends, and he said, well, you want to learn to do this? And I said, yeah. And he would teach me to bartend. And so every night I would go in there, I'd be waiting for Patty and this and that, and he'd teach me to work the bar. And he'd teach me about what to do, what not to do, to the point of cutting fruit, of ordering you know, liquor, of, of, of just doing all of the little tiny details about running a bar from behind the bar. I'm now working weekends at Steak and Brew. So for two nights, I'm getting $120 a night. That's $250 plus $125 teaching school. I'm doubling my teaching school money. And I'm saying, this is pretty cool. This is pretty cool, man. I'm, I'm making a lot of money here. So one night, the bartender didn't come in at the Steak and Brew. And Dick, the manager, said, well, would you go behind the bar? I said, sure. And there were about 25 seats in the bar. And because it was such a packed restaurant, people would come to the bar and they'd wait for their table. And so I started tooling tips at the bar. And that night... I made $150 in tips plus my pay. And I said, this is a pretty good gig. I'm not running around waiting table. I'm standing here behind the bar socializing with people, and I'm making more money than if I was running around waiting table. Or teaching. Or <laughs> and teaching, no question. But I'm still teaching during the day because you got all that energy when you're young. That goes right until about June, and then I stopped teaching. Happens that Mitch, the guy who taught me to bartend, becomes the manager at a brand new restaurant in Canton, here in Connecticut, called the Black Dog Tavern. And it was a great concept. It was in an old house, it was an open-fired steakhouse with a serve-yourself salad bar, a lot of liquor, moving the bar. He becomes the manager there. And he says to me, you know what to teach next year. And I said, well, I'm not making a hell of a lot of money. <laughs> and he said, well, why don't you open the bar for me during the day, Monday to Friday? Come here at 10 o'clock in the morning, cut fruit, put the liquor out, count the seats, do the things that you need to do to open the bar, and then run the bar and be the service bar as well during the lunch 
hour and then leave for the dinner hour because you'll have you'll work from like ten to six to five or six at that point. I said, okay, I'll give it a shot. And that was a small bar. There were only six or eight seats. But the regulars came in every day. And you got tipped every day. And the waitresses and waiters gave you a percentage of what they got as well. So here I'm working the day bar there, and I'm making pretty good money. I'm making like $150 a day working the day bar. And he said to me, you know, because you're only working the day bar, you want to take two nights on the floor? Because people are making 150 a night on the floor here on the weekends, and I was only working Monday to Friday. So I said, sure. So I would work till 5 o'clock on Friday, and then I'd go on the floor, and then I'd work Saturday night. I'd go on the floor. And now instead of making what amounted to $600 a week in bar, I was adding to that another $250, $300 working the tables as well. And I still had off on Saturday during the day and all day Sunday. And I'm saying to myself, I'm making close to $1,000 a week. Yeah. And it's 1970. And I'm saying, do people know about this? <laughs> this, <laughs> knows you can do this? This, is, this is crazy. <laughs> and of course, I can't get to the bank. So you come home at night and you put all your cash into the top drawer of my dresser. So I would come home, put the cash in there, and it finally got to the point where I opened the drawer and the money would pop out, and I'd be pushing the money down, trying to figure out where I could go put this money, because it was in the top drawer of my dresser. And there were thousands of dollars in there. And I did that for probably close to a year, and learned a whole lot about the restaurant business, and tendon bar, and people. There's really nothing like working in the restaurant. And it becomes addictive. Your social life is part of that whole restaurant routine. The culture, the people that you meet, the people who work in the restaurants with you, the friends you make that are staffed there, that have the same hours that you have, and that you go to the after hours places with, because that's who's around, you know? It's just, it becomes a cultural thing. I left Connecticut, went back to New York, and I ran into accidentally a guy that I'd known in high school who was one of the Lynch brothers, who were these cool jock type guys out of a parochial school in Rockville Center next to Oceanside. And they had opened a bar called Solomon Grundy's Pub. Born on a Monday. Yep, out of that, out of that whole Solomon Grundy's rhyme. It was a very unusual bar to me. They didn't serve food. It was a very long bar about 160 feet long. There's four stations at the bar. Each bartender had about 20 seats in front of them. The room couldn't have been more than 50 feet wide. But it was jammed. It was, it was a place you met people. They had a little band on a platform in the back, but nobody really cared too much about it. But it was a place you went and met people and mingled. And you'd have 250, 300 people a night coming through there on a Friday or Saturday night. And you had 40 seats at the bar, so they're standing behind the bar. So what you realized was the thing that you had to do is take every pretty girl you could find and put them in a bar seat right in front of you and buy them back drinks all night long because the guys would generate to the section with the prettiest girls. And they'd be standing behind them. And they'd be ordering drinks and they'd be hitting you with tips because they wanted to show up to the girls 
then essentially you'd be making a fortune. And so I was working there Thursday night through Saturday night, and I was making $657 a week in cash, taking it away and going to grad school during the day the rest of the week. And I did that for a couple of years. Then it kind of got funky. I met a guy who was in there a lot. It was this little guy. He was a goofy little guy. And he owned a restaurant around the corner called The Steak Loft. And he wanted me to come bartend. And so he sent his head manager over, and the manager walked me, hey, come work for us from Monday to Thursday, and then you come here, and so on and so forth. And I went there. Well, the guy happened to be Steve Rubell. And Steve Rubell, it was his first restaurant. Steve Rubell is the guy that ultimately opened Studio 54 in New York City. Okay. <laughs> so, These are things I didn't know about my father. <laughs> so I'm working at Solomon Grundy's, and somehow, and I can't, you know, you meet people, and you never, you know, you bartend, you don't even remember where you meet people sometimes. And the guy says to me that I met, oh, why don't you come work at the Playboy Club in New York City? You'll make a fortune. So I said, well, okay, I'll give it a shot. So I went in there. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so, yeah, I'll give it a shot. So I go in there, and I'm there for two weeks. Well, they were unionized, and I didn't want to join a union, and I didn't like the whole hoopla of the place, and it was just, it was just not my style of place. And so, in two weeks, I left, and it was that day I was walking the street, and who do I run into? Steve Rebell. And he's jumping all over the place. Oh, it's so good to see you, I mean, you know. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I said, yeah. He says, I just opened a place. It's downtown. You're going to love the place. 354. I need a bartender. I need lots of bartenders. Why don't you come? I'll give you a job. So I, uh, I go down there. And uh, I, uh, <laughs> what the f I go to work for him for a week. You worked at Studio 54 for a week? One week. <laughs> Still a story I didn't know. One week. I, cool. said, I said to myself, this is the scariest place I have ever been. <laughs> and I said, I'm out of here, man. This is crazy. This is in the late 70s now. So I, I think it was the late 70s. I get fuzzy in terms of what years things are. I just remember the, 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 the status of how things were. But by then, things had changed in my life, and I was teaching full-time, and I had married, married a girl that I had met who was one of my pretty girls at the bar at Solomon and Grundy's, and um, I had a daughter, but we were bartending on weekends, and we were working restaurants, because she had always worked as a waitress, because it's great money, and it's great for the people you meet, the things you do, and it's just, it's a high. It's always a high. And so I continued to bartend as, uh, as I went further and further along in my educational work and actually became chairman of the English department in the Lantua schools and continued to bartend. And I would bartend on weekends, but I was bartending in a place in the middle of Long Island. I don't even remember how I got the job, but it was a restaurant, steak restaurant, and a place at a big catering hall. So they did weddings, and they had this motel in the back. Motel in the back. Uh-huh. $6 a night for a room. So it was the original no-tell motel. Now, what do you mean by no-tell motel? Well, a no-tell motel would be a place <laughs> that you took somebody, and you didn't ever admit being there with them. Ah, I get it, I get it, I get it. I'm here so, with you. So they would do these weddings that were like these kind of 
not great weddings, and they give you a room with the wedding. Now, who would want to stay there after their wedding? I cannot imagine. But I would be working the bar and the service bar for the weddings and this and that. And I did that there for a while. Probably, uh, I did that for about a year. And then there was an incident there, and uh, I kind of left. I didn't want to do it anymore. What, what do you mean by incident? Well, the guy who was the owner of the bar, restaurant, was a, he owned a health club. And he was a big, strong guy. And we had some unusual people that came through the doors on during the week. And they were sometimes locals, clam diggers, fishermen, people like that, people in the trades on Long Island, the middle of Long Island. And there was a guy that would come in there, and his, his nickname was Wild Bill from Manorville. I didn't know who he was other than that. He was Wild Bill from Manorville. And he would constantly want to arm wrestle the owner. <laughs> and finally he got the owner to agree to arm wrestling, and the owner of course beat him. Beat him soundly, three out of three. Yeah. Wild Bill got furious and walked out of the bar. Came back a few days later, and it was a very eclectic crowd there, because it wasn't really a, it, wasn't, it was like a locals bar when we weren't doing restaurant type things. And uh, there was an old gent and his lady they would come in there like once a week or twice a week and they'd sit in the corner of the bar and they'd just have some drinks and this and that and chat and they were very nice people. He had to be in his 60s. And Wild Bill came in, sat next to them, and he started fooling with the lady. And the guy got upset. And I kind of leaned over the bar and I said to him, look, Bill, this is not fair. You gotta stop this. And Bill got a little obstreperous with me, and um, he reached for my tie, because back then you always wore a shirt and a tie. He reached for my tie and pulled me across the bar. Now, you kind of never do that <laughs> in a bar like this, because I got a speed rack right here. So I pull a, bar, a bottle out of the speed rack, and I hit him across the side of the head with the bottle. And he goes that he goes... <laughs> He goes down, then he leaves, right? I report it to my owner. The owner says, hey, look, we'll see what happens in this and that, but the old couple backed me up. Right, right. And the next day, we always parked our cars on the street in front of the place. It was a big, wide street. We parked our cars, and I had a brand new Nova. It was such a big deal to me. I had a brand new Nova. It was like one of those gold brown yeah. things. It was really cool. Yeah. And it was on the street. He knew my car. And he had this big, huge pickup truck with this big rack in front of it, this and that. And he came and he slammed into my Nova with his pickup truck. And then, all of a sudden, we hear pop, pop, pop. And he's firing a shot, uh, not a shotgun, but a rifle through the front windows of the bar. Jesus. So we tucked, we tucked down behind the bar. And we call the police, of course, and the police come and we tell them, and we tell them, you know, what the truck looked like and who we thought it was. Yeah. They went and arrested the guy. Yeah. Now, I don't know what happened after that because I left the bar. Yeah. I said, you know, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, it's time for me to leave yeah. this bar. But um, I worked on and off once in a while. I would do a gig here and there if somebody needed me to work. Yeah. You know, I still knew a lot of people in the business. and. I kind, of, I kind of guess like you guys also, you know, somebody will call and say, can you give me two weeks doing this, or can you, can you do this special event? And I would do it, 
And I did that till I, um, till I graduated from law school. And after I graduated from law school, I was living in New York City with my wife, John's mother. I... So it was, just, it, was, it was just too much. And I had to give up something, and I felt maybe it was time. I was 36 years old when I gave it up. Yeah. I got to tell you, there's still time that I miss it. Yeah. Yep. There are still times I miss it. There are still times that I miss the, the paternal, collegial aspects of it, especially when I'm in a bar that John's working, and I see him work in the bar. And uh, I was at a bar that he worked a number of years ago, uh, and I'm watching him go up and down the bar and knowing all the people and working with all the people and how fast his hands were at that point. And I said, hey, you know what? He's better than I was. He's good. <laughs> You've started to tell us some stories, and that's usually our next question. I know, and I don't know if I've ever told Alex, but this is a surprise for Alex, because one of our favorite things to talk about on this podcast is ghost stories within bars. Now, I know that one of your friends worked at a pretty popular bar that I think we're going to talk about later in the season, yeah. if I'm correct. Yeah. Um, do you have any ghost stories that occurred within bars? Well, you do, because first of all, you're, you're in, you're, first of all, when you're here in the Farmington Valley, this is the home of ghost stories, because ghost stories just happen here. Then the other thing is that you're working after everybody else is gone, and you're alone a lot of times, and a lot of stuff just happens, and maybe it's a figment of your imagination, maybe it's not, but the reality is there's a lot of stuff I can't explain, so if I can't explain it, as far as I'm concerned, let it be a ghost. Yeah. You know what? We're actually going to put a hold on that. Because Alex and I are planning something pretty special for October. If you have any ghost stories or freaky things that have happened to you in bars, we'd love to hear from you as well. So send us an email, drop us a line. And we're going to skip Claude's ghost story for now. Because we're going to save bar ghost stories for two special episodes that are going to come out during the spooky season in October. Hey Alex, do you know what time it is? What time is it, John? Well, unfortunately it's time for a good old-fashioned bathroom break, so we'll be right back after these messages from maybe Alex and maybe our sponsor. So here's the deal. I still love Austin Eastsiders, but we haven't been in contact with them for a while. However, I have been talking to my new friend Jim over at Screwball Whiskey. I don't know if you guys have tried Screwball Whiskey, but it is the perfect peanut butter whiskey. Now, Jim doesn't know that I'm making this ad for him right now, but we have been in talks on doing some stuff together, and he does listen to the podcast. This one goes out to you, Jim. Uh, make sure to try some Screwball Whiskey, because it is delightful. Mix it with jelly, put it on your turkey. And we are back. Do you have any gross bar stories? Do you have anything that you ever like worked in and you were just like, this is this foul? Is yeah, there's only one. It's not really that gross, yeah. it's just odd. Yeah. Steak and Brew was unlimited beer. All the beer you could drink. And uh, there were separate rooms at Steak and Brew. And there was a back room, which was station eight. And there were like two four tops and an eight top in the middle, around. And these guys came in from God knows where, but it still was farm country back then in the 70s. There was a lot of farm country here. And they were clearly off the farms, and you know they came in overalls and stuff like that, and they came in for the beer. 
And so we gave them a pitcher of beer, we gave them another pitcher of beer, they still hadn't ordered, we gave them a third pitcher of beer, and we kind of said to them, what guys, you gotta order. So they ordered, you know, so we kept, but they wanted to keep the beer coming, it was unlimited beer, that's what it was, so we kept giving them the beer. I go in, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm working with one of the girls who is my partner on these, uh, you know, 16 seater, seater in the back room, we had the back room. And <laughs> one of the guys gets up from the table, calm as you could be, walks over into the corner of the room and throws up all over the floor. Calmly, turns around, goes back to his seat, starts drinking more beer. <laughs> and she goes, well, I can't work here, this is crazy. What are you, nuts? This is crazy. Uh, she calmed down. You know, it's too good. The money was too good. You know, get over it. You know, somebody else is going to clean it up. <laughs> That's a good one. Do you have any pet peeves when you were bartending or that customers did? I can't really, other than if I was sick and had to go in sick, I can't remember a bad day working in a restaurant. The days would go quickly, the days were fun. I was a whole lot more tolerant of the people back then than I am now, and that I was in my, 30, in my late 30s and 40s and 50s. And everybody, interested me. You see everything when you're working a bar. You see every type. You have so un many unbelievable relationships and the ability to juggle those things and to move from person to person and just accept who they are and work with it in that way. It was a, it was a huge learning experience. Nothing has prepared me more for being an attorney than working with the boss. Just knowing people. What about coworkers? Did, did, it, did you ever work with people that pissed you off? You know, you work with people that, if they were lazy, or they were a thief, they would upset you. That would piss anybody. Mostly, they were strange. Like, we had a guy who uh, cleaned up when we closed down, and he was just a strange kid. We were there a lot. They hired him to come in from like, 11 o'clock at night, 12 o'clock at night to like 6 o'clock in the morning, clean the place up, do stuff like that. Well, one night, your mother was counting receipts in the restaurant with the other hostess. She hears this huge crash. And they look in the, in the bar room, and he has swept all of the, bar, or the bottles off of the bar. There's nobody there but the two of them and him. And... Elaine, who she was working with, said to her, well, let's go into the ladies' room. He won't come in there. <laughs> so they went to the ladies' room, and they called, before they went into the ladies' room from the office, the new manager that was Dick had died, who was a fellow named Tommy. Tommy was a great manager, and he ultimately left there and went to law school and became a great lawyer. But Tommy said, well, what, what, what do I have to come in for? And they said, no, he's nuts. He's, he's destroying stuff. And all of a sudden, they heard another crash that he heard on the phone. He had broken the glass behind the bar. He said, I'll be right there. <laughs> you know? But yeah, yeah, you had people that were more a little unusual. One night, state police came in the place. And they went into the kitchen. And they arrested two of the waiters who had apparently been selling drugs. 
and this was a restaurant that played rock and roll music all the time. And so you had these people that were in their 50s and 60s listening to rock and roll music, eating the steaks and so on and so forth. And, and the show was the show was the waiters and waitresses and people who worked there. Yeah. I mean, we were a show for them. Yeah. And all of a sudden, these state police officers are marching the waiters out of the kitchen in handcuffs. And one of the ladies grabs my sleeve at a table. She had to be 60 years old and says, that's my waiter. What's going to happen? <laughs> I love that. I didn't much care about him. care yeah, about her food. Something to bring me my food. That's awesome. What's your favorite cocktail? What's your favorite thing to drink, to make? What do you like? I'm a pretty simple guy. I like Jameson's a lot. So if I'm sitting around and I'm doing some kind of socializing at a bar, I'm probably drinking Jameson's standing with usually a twist and ice. Or I'm drinking it standing with no ice, with just a twist, depending on if it's cold out. Or I'm drinking it with coffee. And so what I'll do is I'll pour it in the coffee, mix it up in yeah. the coffee and drink it. Well, I'm curious, though, like, when you were bartending, what was, like, the drink that the most people wanted? They most want, well, the women wanted to fruit drinks. They wanted mixed drinks that were fruit drinks. The sours. This was back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. The sours were a big deal. Was this you Prohibition know? era? I'm sorry? Was this Prohibition era? Yeah, just about. <laughs> just about. Not, not far from it. They liked sours, and this depends upon age also. When you, get, when you we work in a bar that had older people, like a restaurant bar, like the Black Dog Tavern, they were looking at martinis. You know, they were looking at Manhattans. They were looking at the, the, the classic American songbook drinks. You know, the Frank Sinatra drinks. You know, they, that's what they, they emulated that. Vodka martinis. The really exotic drinks were not something that people really got involved in. And very often we would have to learn them on the run because we didn't know them. I mean, we didn't even do them very often. Pretty much depended upon the crowd. The younger crowd, were, even the guys, were into the sours, you know, whiskey, bourbon sours, things of that nature. And the older crowds were into the Frank Sinatra crowd drinks. Highballs, they used to call them. Ah. Mm -hmm. If you could open a bar now, at the age you are, yeah. <laughs> 47 years young, what's your, what's your ideal bar? Where do you want to go sit and have a cocktail? Well, it wouldn't be a senior citizen's topless joint. I can tell you that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Comforting. It would be, if I could open a bar now, I think to some extent it would be a bar that was somewhat like this one that we're sitting in right now, the Redstone. That was a community bar that catered to a whole range of age, economic interests, types of people who just kind of got together here, lived in this community, kind of knew each other, and so it was very social. I, I would make certain changes. I would serve hot food. I would do it a, a little bit differently than this place does it. There's a place down the road that if I was 15 years younger, I might say to my son, hey, you want to open a bar? <laughs> you know, uh, where are we man. going down the road? Over at McLaren's. McLaren's? McLaren's. Closed. Yeah. I know. It didn't make it. Well, they didn't make it for a variety of reasons. Yeah, Claude's going to make it. Oh, okay. They didn't make it for a variety of reasons. 15 years ago. But it's, 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 a, it's a decent building, and, it's, and I, I would always want to have a bar that had an outside, that was a, an enjoyable place that people could sit outside, because people love that. They just love it. Even before COVID, they love sitting outside. 
And then you gotta have some signature meals. There was a bar in town here called the One Way Fair that was opened in a train station that had been closed down. And they had sandwiches. They had certain signature meals. The station switch, steak and stout, those kinds of recipes and meals. Well, when they closed down, actually they were bought by uh, Plan B. Those actual recipes went to a pizza bar in town. They went to Antonio's, and they're on the menu, the station switch, and yes, they steak are. and stout, and so on and so forth. Yeah. They become signature things to a place in a community. Yeah. You know, you get involved, sponsor a softball team, yeah. you watch them call it, you run trivia nights. You do all of the kinds of things to get people in that feel that this is a comfortable and good place to go. That's the kind of bar I love. That's the kind of bar I would like. Yeah. But you know, at this age, at 76 yesterday, five years from now, there is the distinct possibility I'm drooling out of the corner of my mouth. And if that is in fact the case, it's unfair to anybody they settle this bar with. Where are some of the most memorable restaurants and bars that you've ever been? What are they called? Are they still open? Can we go to them? Are you buying? <laughs> If you're coming with me, I'd always buy because that's the way I get to see you. Nice. Okay. <laughs> so where are we going? Here and there, you get a really unusual and good restaurant in a, a place that's unusual. But in terms of consistently, and this has changed with COVID. This has changed dramatically with COVID. Consistently, the best restaurants I have ever gone to are in New York City. It's a mecca for food, was. And you could pretty much, you have your favorites, you know, but if you're not any good in New York City, if you're not any good, you're closed. Yeah. You're closed. So essentially, it's a great place to test a lot of different things. Now, that being said, there are certain restaurants in certain cities that are spectacular. There's a restaurant in Tampa that you went to, I cannot remember the name of it, it's in this old factory building, and you come in and you have cocktails in one part of the restaurant, then you move to another for your steaks, which are excellent, and then you go upstairs to private rooms for your desserts. And it's just a, a really, really cool restaurant. And that's, that's a real good one. There's a Cuban restaurant in Tampa that's a spectacular restaurant. There's a couple of great restaurants in Atlanta. Yeah. Cities have good restaurants. Cities? For, well, they're just so much more diverse than any rural areas. So there's just that. And there's so many more people yeah. that uh, you can draw so many more people and make so much more money. Uh, the rents are yeah. also outrageous. Right. But here, in, where we're sitting right now in Simsbury, in this whole valley, you've got maybe 60,000 people. Yeah. 60,000 people is your market. That's what you want. That's not a lot. That's not a lot. What about uh, New York? New York City? Yeah. I haven't been in New York City for quite a while, although I've gone in for weekends. You were just there for my wedding. Yes, I was. <laughs> you <laughs> I got was married? There. I was there How for How many your... times you get married? Oh, it's third. I, yeah. Come on. <laughs> I was there for your wedding. I was in Brooklyn for your wedding. Yeah, you were in Brooklyn. I was in the bowels of Brooklyn for your wedding. Yeah. And having fun. Yeah. And having fun. In New York City, there are still a couple of really excellent steakhouses. Many of them have closed. The one that I like the most is called the Strip Club. And the Strip Club has two branches. One is on West 44th Street, which is the second one they opened. The other one is down in, in, on the east side. 
and it's still a, it would have been one of the good average ones if the others had not all closed but there were so many that closed Smith and Walensky is still pretty good yeah. but I like Smith and Walensky's pub which is around the corner from their steakhouse better than the steakhouse itself you know there's a great Chinese restaurant in, that you've been at the pig uh, uh, the, the blind uh, not the blind pig uh, uh, the, um, gotta bring that name up huh? uh, the, the name of that the name of that restaurant is it is, Bat Pig or Pig Heaven pig guys it's Pig Heaven Pig Heaven pig 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 come on guys we knew it was Pig Heaven pig, pig no, I was it, waiting for somebody it, to get it it's a real good Chinese restaurant and that place is pretty good the thing that's disappointed me the most is that we've lost so many really great Italian restaurants out of Manhattan we still have a few, but we've lost most of them. And the few that we have are mostly in the in the theater district. So they're very popular and it's pop culture kind of thing. Most of the Italian restaurants, my understanding, have moved to Brooklyn. You know, the River Cafe in Brooklyn. If you don't like the food, you can't miss the view. It's under the Brooklyn Bridge, looking at the New York City skyline. It's an absolutely beautiful place. Oh, and last one. It was a great, great place to take a date. If you really wanted to impress a woman, or, then a, man. It, then it, or, or a man, or a man, if you wanted to impress your, your if you wanted to impress somebody, somebody. <laughs> you would go down to, to the West Village, and on Barrow Street in the West Village was a place called One If By Land, Two If By Sea, about the River Corridor Wide. And it was in Aaron Burr's coach house where he kept his horses. And the building was still there, just as it was, except there aren't horses in it. There's this beautiful, beautiful restaurant with this circular stairway that goes up, white tablecloths, a black onyx um, baby grand piano, a huge, gorgeous bar with a gigantic flower arrangement on it, and the best beef Wellington I've ever had anywhere. Every time I had a date in New York, he would say that place, so I was waiting for him to get there. I was going to keep Have you taken feeding a date? Him. No, it's too expensive for me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry all the dates I took out in New York. Um, no, um, I got to tell you, the last time I did it, pretty good, but it had changed hands, and two times ago it was abysmal, and then it got better. Yeah. But it's still not what it was. That was the last time I went, which is six months, eight months ago. It was on an upward climb again, so I bet I bet you it's pretty good again. Cool. Here at the buyback, we love to try and teach our customer, our listeners, how to do nice things. I don't know. I, this is a pre-recorded thing Alex usually puts into the episode. Dad, before you go, is there any piece of advice or rule that you think that anyone walking into a bar or a restaurant or an eating establishment of any kind is there any piece of advice you could offer your casual? all-around person who's trying to do their best as a customer, guest, friend, I don't know, whatever the restaurant calls them. Here at the buyback, one of the things we want to do is talk about bar etiquette. So here is our bar rule. Bar rule. Yeah, an extra couple of bucks doesn't mean anything to you, but means an awful lot to that server. I like it, yeah. And they appreciate it, and they remember it. Yeah. And there's a thank you, and you're not looking for a return, even if you don't go back to the place. It means something to them. I was recently in a little restaurant here in town, and I was there with my wife's daughter, who worked tables for many years. And 
It was a nice little restaurant, and the waitress was really, really very good. And she was very kind, and she was very pleasant. And she was telling us this was her last day, because she had taken this job, and she couldn't handle both for a while. And the job was essentially in a career that she was moving toward, and that she was going to miss this place terribly. And I, the bill came to like $40, $45. It was, it was a lunch bill. <clears throat> and my wife's daughter put $40 on the table for it. And I said, wow, that was really nice. She said, you know what? She can use that money. And it's not that hard for me. And I said, you're right. And I matched her with the $40. The kid came back to the table and she looked at the three of us and she started to cry. And she said, this is the kind of thing that makes me miss being a waitress. Right. Before she even left, right? Yeah. yeah. So, because yeah. there's always, everyone has a story like that. Yeah. And where a good customer comes in, you have this weird connection and you just kind of, they treat you better than you ever expected. You never expect that. Yeah. You never know. You could be, you could have the nicest table ever and they can still tip you like shit. Yeah. Every now and then you get like that customer. Yeah. Do we have some time left? Yeah, you got yeah, something to say? Time, yeah. Okay. JB was working at a bar called uh, The Blind Pig. All right. <laughs> very, very cool bar. Very cool bar. I would go there once in a while and it was nuts because it was, I guess it was the Arsenal Soccer Clubhouse for New York City. Yeah. And I had never been in a place like that. I'd been in football bars, but not something like this where people got up on the tables. Well, you've been in American football bars, yeah. Claude. Please, go to yourself. American football yeah. bars. Yeah. But not people European getting up, getting up yeah. on the, having songs that they sang. It, yeah. was, it was crazy. Yeah. Well, I went there, St. Pat's. And knowing the bar, one of the bartenders, I got a seat saved for me. Ah. So I'm sitting there, St. Pat's, and this Brit comes in with this knock-down, drag-out, gorgeous blonde who's from the Midwestern United States. And he lives in the city, and she does also. He works in an investment firm. And we saw chatting there. And it was really very nice. And they're saying to me, you gotta try an Irish car bar. And the <laughs> bar is jammed. I mean, it's jammed. There's people singing and jumping all over the place. And I'm going, what's that? And they said, oh wait, you'll get it. So Jave comes over and they ask him for an Irish car bomb for me, and he looks at me and goes, you know what you're doing? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I'll, I'll be all right, I can do this. <laughs> so he sets up this Irish car bomb. And they say to me, now you gotta drink the whole thing down. You gotta drink it in one gulp. You gotta drink this thing down. So I said, oh, come on, I can do this. I can do this, I'm 70 years old. I'm, I'm still tough enough to do this. Well, I drank the thing down, right? I thought my head popped off. <laughs> I'm looking at the ceiling saying, where am I and will this stop soon, please? <laughs> but it tasted great. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> I think you had like two or three. Uh, well, you didn't protect me. Well. <laughs> I, I told you. you I said, do you, you know what you're in, doing? You, you said, I know what I'm doing. Yeah. You, you yeah. did not protect me. You did not protect me. Yeah, it's true. It's true. There was only other one other time I can remember uh, really funny thing happening in that bar. I was only in there four or five times. But I'm sitting at the end of the bar, and there was a, a bunch of young women in their early 30s, late 20s, that work in a health club across the street that are sitting at the end of the bar with me. And they're all Irish. They're all Irish women. They're these great brogues, right? And 
I'm just this old guy sitting at the bar looking like an old drunk, right? And I'm drinking, and he's coming down, and uh, he's filling everybody's glasses, and he starts buying them back. And what they're drinking is picklebackers, which is something we never drank either. Yeah. Uh, I don't drink now, ever. And, he, and they're drinking two, and he's yeah. drinking three, and he's buying them one back. And they're drinking another two or three, and he's buying another one back. And he's walking back up and down, back up and down, back up and down. And the one sitting next to me, she... She's getting, getting a little woozy, and she kind of looks at me, and she goes, and he walks away. My son walks away. She says, oh, yeah, sure. He's a fine figure of that, isn't he? <laughs> and I said to her, yeah, he's my son. And she goes, ah! And they all start screaming and yelling. <laughs> we should just have the Claude stories for a whole episode. Claude stories? Claude stories. Here's our Claude story section for the week. Dad. That was great. Thank Father. you very much. Hey, thanks for having me. It's, a, it's, it's good to have uh, recognition for those years behind the bar. Yeah. Thanks, guys. You're welcome. This is a good, good thing you're doing. It was nice meeting you. It was very nice meeting you. <laughs> it was nice meeting you. Thank you for coming on. Nice uh, meeting you, Alex. Oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, we'll be in touch, okay? Yeah, we'll reach out. See you at the holidays. Thank you for listening to us. Stop. To <laughs> Stop. Hey, guys. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the buyback, Follow us on Twitter at The Buyback, on Instagram at The Buyback Podcast, or email us at thebuybackpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. And if you are a bartender or know a bartender who should be on the podcast, let us know. Please like and subscribe. If you write a review, it will actually help boost us as well. So anything you can do to support us would be awesome. Tell your friends. Remember to be nice and tip your bartenders well, and we'll see you next time. Well, there we go.